Good evening. God's glory is revealed in an infinite number of ways. In fact, if we consider it for a moment, the whole earth is really this intergalactic display case where the divine and holy and unique and powerful attributes of God are clearly seen. Without a doubt, the most complete manifestation of God's glory is seen in Jesus. The Bible tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 11 of John records the last and the most awesome, the most powerful of the seven miraculous signs in the Gospel of John. That miracle is Jesus raising a dead person back to life. Is that such so commonplace that we don't get excited about that? Maybe I didn't do it right. Let me take a better warm-up. Let's see here. <clears throat> the miracle that we see displayed in chapter 11 is Jesus raising a dead person back to life. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's a little better. <laughs> From the outset, I have to hasten to highlight this miracle's primary purpose was not to restore life to Lazarus, nor was the primary purpose to comfort Lazarus's grieving sisters. The primary purpose of the miracle was that Jesus and the Father would be glorified. Yes, the disciples' faith would be increased because of what they saw. And this event also set into motion, it escalated the opposition to Jesus, and this is what led him to Calvary and ultimately to the execution on the cross. As we'll see, God used Lazarus' death to ultimately accomplish the purpose that had been divinely set out long before Lazarus was even born. You see, some of the mourners that we'll look at in just a moment became informers. They ran back to Jerusalem to tell the leadership that Jesus was back, but I'm a little ahead of the story. So to put this into context, we need to, to look at the events that are recorded in the previous chapter. In chapter 10, Jesus is preaching, and he's contrasting the good shepherd versus the evil shepherds. He's contrasting the good shepherd to the thieves and the robbers, and he makes it very clear that he is the good shepherd. I'm reading from John 10, starting at verse 31. Let me say this to you as well. I want to encourage you to use and read your Bible. I know that we live in an age and in a time where we have consecrated the technology and we have Bibles on cell phones and tablets and smartphones, but beloved, there is something to be said for having your own Bible that you have marked, and when God speaks to you, you've underlined and you've dated and you've amened, and it becomes personal to you. God's Word becomes personal, so I want to encourage you 
Bring your Bible. Read your Bible. Mark your Bible. Put footnotes in it. Put pictures in there. When God reveals his truth to you, write amen next to the passage. So we turn to John chapter 10, starting at verse 31, and he says, now this is interesting, then the Jews took up stones against him to stone him. Now remember, Jesus had just been preaching. So Jesus answered them and said, look, many good works have I shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered and said, for good works we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus goes on to explain to them, I'm doing the works of my father, believe it or not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I am in him. And with that pronunciation, they sought to stone him again. They sought to put their hands on him. Jesus has to leave, and he and his disciples now take off across the Jordan because they want to kill him. This is where chapter 11 picks up. Jesus has had to flee. He's left. He's now approximately 20 miles outside across the Jordan. Now, we've already established that the primary purpose of this account was to bring God glory. But I submit to you that this miracle, this raising a dead man back to life, also reveals to us some attributes of God that only God can possess. And with the little time that we have, I want to focus on four of those divine and exclusive attributes. The first is God's sovereignty. Lazarus gets sick, and his sisters Mary and Martha send a messenger to go tell Jesus. Now, it takes the messenger a full day to get from Bethany to where Jesus is. And during the time that he's traveling, Lazarus dies. There's no way for the messenger to know this. So when he gets to Jesus, the only message he knows to impart is that that he left with. And that is, Martha and Mary told me to come and tell you that Lazarus is very sick. But I want you to note, if we look at John 11, starting at verse 11, look at what Jesus says to them. Now, saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. How does Jesus know this? How could he have known this? That's why we see one of his attributes revealed in those three words, Lazarus has died, the sovereignty of God, because he's all-knowing. Jesus looks at the past, present, and the future like you and I look at a photograph. He sees it. Now, admittedly, this theology can be hard. We live in a day and in a time and in a culture and in a climate and in a city where gratuitous violence is everywhere. 
Young children are being shot down in the streets. Several weeks ago here in the Chicago, more than 77 people were shot in a 14-hour period of time, and many of them lost their lives. The FBI national crime clock records that one murder occurs in America every 30 seconds, one robbery every 1.6 minutes, vehicles are stolen every 41 seconds, a rape occurs every four minutes. This violence, this depravity, this senseless loss of life would cause us and some to assume that God either doesn't care or that somehow he's incapable of doing anything about it. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing happens that doesn't have to go through the sovereign and permissive will of God. Before this earth was formed, God knew what would happen. Now that fact can serve as a source of comfort for you when you face the vicissitudes of life. God doesn't have a plan B. God is not caught by surprise. God knew it would happen. God permitted it to happen. God allowed it to happen, and so we rest in that fact. That means he also has a plan. Now this attribute can be hard for us to accept and sometimes fully understand. But also it brings us to this truth. You can be firmly in the will of God and experience hardship. Consider the Apostle Paul. He was doing what God wanted him to do, where he wanted him to do it, to whom he wanted him to do it. He was saying what he wanted him to say, yet he was beaten. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was falsely accused, but he was doing exactly what God would have him to do. In our story, Lazarus knew Jesus, yet he got sick. Mary and Martha knew Jesus, yet Lazarus died. Jesus knew what would happen to Lazarus. He knew that he would die, and he knew that he would raise him from the dead. We see his sovereignty in that, in that before he even got the message, Jesus understood that Lazarus was already dead. We also see his sovereignty in the discourse he has with his disciples, and I like this part. We go back to the text, and it says, it's 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, it's interesting that he says Judea. He doesn't say to them, Lazarus, our friend, is sick. So I tell you what, let's slip back over to Bethany. Go check in on Lazarus, and then we can slip back over the Jordan River before anybody even knows we were there or not. No, there's no slipping. He says, let's just go back to Judea. Then in verse 8, the disciples say to him, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? Now, they're trying to be respectful. I can see him saying, you know, Master, 
I'm not trying to run your business, but uh, you remember if you're keeping up on contemporary events a short time ago, they were trying to kill you in Judea, and you want to go back to Judea? Is that what you're suggesting? Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. And then he gives them that proverbial saying about 12 hours of the day. The 12 hours of the day that he illustrates in the passage, what he's saying is that symbolizes the duration of Jesus' earthly ministry here on earth. That time that has been divinely allotted by God the Father. And just as you and I can't lengthen or shorten a day, what he's telling them you can't extend my time, nor can the Pharisees shorten it. This is divinely within the province of God. God knows exactly how long I'm going to be here, and there isn't anything that anybody can do to me until my mission itself is accomplished. This reveals his sovereignty. He has nothing to fear, and it is with us as well. When God gives you something to do, no matter the opposition, no matter what others may say, you can rest in the fact that there isn't anything that anyone can do to you that does not first have to go through the permissive will of God. And if God has ordained it, then it's part of his divine plan. All too often, the things that affect us are like us looking at a tapestry that is this close. All we can see are the dark black threads. And it isn't until we pull back that it comes into focus and we see that that tapestry has a picture and a plan. And so it is with God's sovereignty. We don't see things from his perspective, from a perspective of eternity. But there is a plan. We aren't hapless victims. And Jesus displays right in front of them his sovereignty over all things when he says, before you were even born, God and I had discussed what we were going to do about Lazarus. Oh, my. One of his disciples hears this pronouncement, and he says, this is verse 16, well, let's just go on back to Bethany with him and die. <laughs> now, Jesus has already told him this is not the time and the hour. I've got this under control. I'm going back there specifically to do something to glorify God and to ignite the fuse of the opposition so that my destiny here will be fulfilled. But he says, well, let's just go on back and die. We'll die with him. Attribute number one that we see is God's sovereignty. The second attribute that's displayed in this story is sympathy. They go back to Bethany, and Martha hears that Jesus is approaching, and she runs out to meet him. She shows great faith in what she says to him. She says, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But for now, I want you to look at the text again. Verses 33 and 34. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you lain him? 
And they said, Lord, come and see. The word weeping there, the actual word is really wailing. They are wailing. In fact, in New Testament times, when you were burying a loved one, even poor people would hire two flute players and a professional wailer. Mary's wailing. The crowd is wailing. And it says that Jesus is troubled and groaned in his spirit and he wept. The word here for wept is very different from the word that is used for wailing for these people. In fact, this word, dakruo, this is the only time in the New Testament where it's ever mentioned. It's a very rare word, and what it means is to silently burst into tears. But it says here that he's troubled and he groaned in his spirit. Now, I have to ask the question, why? We've already established in his sovereignty that he knows he's going to come here and raise him from the dead. Wouldn't it have been easy for him to say, look, stop all that hollering and screaming and carrying on. Watch this. We don't need all that wailing and carrying on. Stop. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead, so why is he troubled? Verse 37. Some of these mourners who will become informers are mocking Jesus. Isn't this the Jesus who was causing sight to the blind and he couldn't help his friend? Isn't this the Jesus that everybody was talking about is doing so many miraculous things and he can't help his Friend, he's listening to that, and he's watching them act like pagans as they're hollering and screaming, fake tears, fake wailing, fake mourning. There's another, though, reason why he's troubled in spirit. Lazarus' death shows the consequence of sin entering the world. It puts on display what sin does. Sin causes physical death. Sin causes spiritual separation from God. The work of the enemy is graphically displayed and he is troubled in his spirit. Yes, by all the fake... You ever been to a funeral... And there's some people who are genuinely grieving, and then you got people who are just acting a fool. Oh, oh, why? Oh, Lord, Lord, why didn't you take me? And everybody in there is going, Yes, Lord, take them. Take them, take, take them now, please. He's watching all this fake hollering and carrying on and this wailing and and these people are mocking and he sees this is what sin does and he's groaning in his spirit. Hebrews 4, 14 tells us, Since when we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, here it is, sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, 
with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. God has sympathy with us. God is pure, he is holy, he is blameless, yet he also can sympathize when we are not. Sometimes you might look at somebody if they have money or affluence and you say, you don't understand my life. You've never been or gone to bed hungry. You can't appreciate what my life is like. You have no experience with my life. That is not the case with our Lord and Savior. Oh, you don't know what it's like to be rejected, to have your friends turn their back on you. And That's not the case with our Lord and with our Savior. Have you felt unloved? Have you been mistreated? He's experienced everything that we have, and he understands and he can sympathize with us. There's no pain he can't feel. There's no sadness he can't feel. And, beloved, there is no sorrow he can't heal. We have a great high priest, the word tells us, and his attribute of being able to sympathize with us in the midst of our turmoil is revealed here in this miracle with Lazarus. And we get to it. Attribute number three. The supernatural power of Jesus. Ooh-wee. Lazarus has been dead now for four days. So how we come up with four days? It took a day for the messenger to get there. Remember, he died. Jesus stayed for two days, and then it takes a day for them to get back. Four days. He tells them, Roll away the stone. Now, I love the King James Version. There are many words and expressions in the King James that we just don't use today. But I don't know. Perhaps we ought to consider resurrecting a couple of those words. One of them is here that they say when he tells them to roll back the stone, they say, well, wait a minute, Lord, he's been laying up in there for four days. And by now, here's the word, he stinketh. I don't know. Maybe we should bring that word back. and We should start using that. Can't you see a breath mint commercial? Your breath stinketh. Get the new Lazarus mints. Your feet stinketh. Lazarus powder. I, I don't know. I don't know about you. I think it would, it would work. Here's the point. In our daily life, we see and hear about people being revived coming out of comas, adrenaline needles being put in their hearts. The defibrillator has become a common part of the American lexicon. Someone's heart stops beating. Clear! They're back. You need to hear me clearly. We praise God for the technology and for doctors and physicians and for medicine. But we need to be clear here. There was no drug that was going to bring Lazarus back. He was not going to be revived by a machine, nor medicine, nor technology. No herb, no science. This body had started to decompose. The blood had stopped flowing. And so now it was accumulating 
in parts of the body. Because the immune system was no longer working, bacteria was spreading at a prolific rate. Rigor mortis had set in. Color had drained from this body. Lazarus was dead. I think that's in part why Jesus delayed in going back so that there would be no question whatsoever about what was going on here. Now, I want you to consider that for a moment. We're not talking about reviving someone. We're not talking about mouth to mouth or compressing their chest. There is no life here whatsoever. And that that these people are about to witness firsthand is nothing short of supernatural and miraculous. He didn't have to say a word, but so there would be no doubt whatsoever. He simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came to life, instantly healed, instantly alive, instantly whole. Sovereign, sympathy, supernatural, Savior. Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And what Jesus demonstrated is the truth for believers that while we may experience a physical death, the power of Christ lives, and because of his power, we can have eternal life. Jesus used the death of Lazarus to bring God glory, to display his divine attributes, and to ignite the opposition to take him to Calvary. On the cross, he paid our debt. On the cross, he reconciled us to God. On the cross, Jesus bore the sins of the world, and on the third day, he showed them that it wasn't a fluke, that he can do it simply by his sheer will alone and not saying anything else. He came out of that tomb alive again. He is Savior. Now, don't be confused, beloved. The miracles did not stop in Bethany. The miracle of giving life didn't stop in Judea. You see, it was under a tree beside Loon Lake at Camp Moyoka that God Almighty used a missionary named Spud Willoughby to call Larry, come forth. No, you don't hear me. Jesus is still today, right now, putting on display his sovereignty in ordaining and appointing the time that you would hear this truth. He's motivated by his great love that none should be lost. That's why the word tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. God knows your situation. He's sympathizing with you in your sorrow, and he is still about the business of performing the impossible, doing the incredible, doing the supernatural and the miraculous in reconciling sinners to God, forgiving our sins, and promising us eternal life. No, I don't think you hear me. You see, the performance of the miracle of salvation, he's turning hearts from stone 
that have been calloused by sin into hearts that are now sensitive to the needs of God and sensitive to the needs of others. Only God can do that, and he's in the salvation business. I tell you, it's a miracle, beloved, and the miracle continues today. The word tells us, and you he has quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. When you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. Jesus is still calling. Juan, come forth. Elizabeth, come forth. David, come forth. Hayung, come forth. Adialo, come forth. Sam, come forth. Pastor Mason, oh, you came forth already. Come forth. <laughs> Do you remember the day he called your name? Do you remember the day he spoke to you? To be reconciled to God? That's nothing short of a miracle. And it continues today. How do you know if God is calling you? The Holy Spirit himself impresses upon us the ability to believe. The account of Lazarus is a true story. This isn't a proverb. It isn't a pithy saying. This actually occurred and was witnessed by many, many people, and that's why Jesus did it, openly and in public. If the God, the Holy Spirit, gives you the ability to believe this account, then God is also giving you the understanding that you need a Savior. That on our best days, we can't be good enough, we can't be holy enough, we can't be right enough to earn our way into heaven. The only way to be reconciled to God is to repent of our sins and to believe what the Bible tells us, that Jesus died for our sins. And if God is giving you the ability to understand that, then he is calling your name. So much of what happens in our culture now is wholesale. It impacts many. This is an individual decision, one-on-one. -on -one. For each one of us, he calls our name your name, personally. And what he is affirming in your heart and even right now is that he died for you. In that oh-so-famous passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he died for Larry so that Larry would have forgiveness of sin and that Larry would have eternal life. 
you need to write your name in that passage. God is calling you. Will you respond? Let's pray. Almighty Father, we can scarcely comprehend how great you are. Your sovereignty in all things, that you know all things. That you understand our pain and our suffering like no one else could. And that you have supernatural power beyond description. We thank you for the truth of your word that you are our savior. And so now, I ask you, Lord, to do what only you can do. There may be someone sitting here for the first time and they've heard this and they say, I don't even know how I understand or believe, but I do. And I want to be saved. I believe Jesus is calling my name. All you have to do now, beloved, is simply pray this prayer with me. Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner, and I've been living my life like you don't even exist. Save me. Use me for your glory, I pray. I want to turn from my sin. I want to say the same thing about my sin that you say about it. And I don't want to live that way anymore. This is your time, beloved. You cry out to Jesus now. And if that's your prayer, I invite you to come up and talk to our prayer partners after we dismiss. Tell someone today about the decision that you've made. Now, Father, we thank you for the time. We thank you for your word. Do now what only you can do. Encourage, equip, enable, convict, call. We'll always be quick to give you the praise, to give you the credit, to give you the honor, to give you the glory. Now we pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Savior and King, and amen.